Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Popular Music. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Today, our guest is Stevie Chick, the author of Spray Paint the Walls, the story of Black Flag, which was released by Omnibus Press back in 2009. I had the great pleasure of reading this book back in 2010 when it was first released, and when I was reading it, I really thought it deserved its place on the shelf alongside some of the other great rock biographies that have been written over the last 10 so years, uh, particularly because I think Black Flag as a punk rock band and as a um, band that really started in the late 1970s and got its um, commercial peak, if you want to call it that, in the 1980s, really has not gotten its full due. Um, even for us who are students of punk rock and fans of punk rock, we certainly know a lot about the Sex Pistols and the scene that they came out of. And of course, probably many of us know about the Ramones and the New York scene that gave rise to that band. But I think fewer of us know about Los Angeles and the context from which Black Flag sprung. And I think that if nothing else, is why Stevie Chick deserves particular credit for writing this great book. It's not just a book that really tells the twists and turns of the band's um, lifespan. Um, it's based on interviews with fans, promoters, and former band members, but it also really does a tremendous job of laying out that context in Los Angeles, which was particularly important for, I think, making Black Flag sound the way the band sounded and making them focus on the themes they focused on in their music. So with that, I'll let us go to the interview with Stevie. Hi, Stevie. Hey, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Can you hear me okay? Definitely, definitely. Well, we are talking to Stevie Chick, who is the author of the fantastic book, Spray Paint the Walls, The Story of Black Flag. He is in uh, London, England, and I'm in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we're having a uh, cross-continent chat about this uh, this really important and influential band. And then I think equally as important, this uh, fantastic book, which came out on Omnibus in 2009. Thank you. That's, uh, you're, you're very kind. Oh, you're, you're quite welcome. It's, it's well-deserved. Um, you know, in uh, spending time with this, this book, and I had read it a few years ago and then revisited it again over the last couple of days, um, there are a lot of things I could say about it, but it's a very dense, rich read about Los Angeles itself in many ways. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed most about the book is that um, we can get into this more later, is that it's not just a book that just tells us about Black Flag. It tells us about the um, the earth, the uh, the landscape that allowed Black Flag to uh, come to life. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, California fascinated me, really. I, I think I did already know that you know, the story of Black Flag would be the story of California somehow, you know, e- even just something as simple as, as their dealings with the LAPD. Absolutely. And, sure. Absolutely. And so anyone who's interested in uh, just the cultural history or social history of Los Angeles in the 80s and 70s would be really, I think, would appreciate this book. Um, but let me let me get into my uh, first question, which is that, yeah, sure. you know, in uh, th- considering <clears throat> the origins of Black Flag, is, is it fair to say that a, a, a geek 
named Greg Ginn is the guy who started one of the most important punk rock bands of all time? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, Greg's, you know, Greg's input into Black Flag uh, is, is, you know, the, the energy he brought to it and the extent to which it's a reflection of Greg Ginn, the man, uh, can't really be overstated. And I think, you know, in terms of, sort of visibility, Henry Rollins is obviously the celebrity of Black Flag. And I don't mean that. Uh, it, to, to diminish him or, or demean him in any way. He's just, you know, a very visible face and a, a guy who's managed to spin, you know, his his talent in as a rock frontman off into various different careers. And and I, I, I think certainly when I first discovered Black Flag as a teenager and around the time that the Rollins band were, were, were hitting their peak, you know, I, I imagined it was Henry's band because Henry was the guy who, who went on to, to become famous and become this, you know, actor and uh, sort of rock superstar. Uh, and I think that's a real mistake. I, I, you know, in all fairness to Henry, that's a mistake. He goes to, to great lengths often to, to correct himself. Black Flag is about Greg Ginn. He, he wrote the lyrics. He, he, he formed the band. He, he wrote the songs. He played the amazing lead guitar. I mean, as a guitarist, he's, he's fascinating, very unique, and a very exciting guitar player. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's him. It, it, it's all about him. He was also the energy that got the label started he was a, a self-starter he, he came from a very unique background uh, very interesting you know very plugged in and intellectual parents who, who i guess gave him a sense that he could do all this stuff and um you know that it, it really is about him and um you know he, he he's the heart of the book i guess yeah and i um yeah maybe to, to sort of rephrase that first question is that uh you know when i, I think about greg ginn building electronics in his basement of his house or the inside the house and stuff it's sort of a uh you can see the how he would maybe leap over to a new uh form in terms of sound but um you know it's just it's not the traditional i don't know what the traditional um musician biography is but it's not the traditional uh, path to uh becoming a, an influential musician it's to sort of have an electronics company you're running out of your house and be living uh in the way the gins lived this is it. I mean, he, he is, you know, he's not hanging out. With... It is interesting, really, isn't it? Because it's like it, it, they were geeks. Nearly all of Black Flag were geeks. I mean, Bill Stevenson, just talking about, you know, the circle of friends in Hermosa Bay, who, who really first started the band. You've got Bill Stevenson, who later became Black Flag's drummer, but initially was, you know, just the Descendants drummer. He was this guy who was dead into fishing and eating. Those were his right. main passions. And he smelled of fish all the time, and he was always sweaty because he'd been out on the boat working uh, and stuff like that. You know, he, he probably wasn't all that popular with the girls. He wasn't the cool guy at school. Uh, the same with, you know, Keith Morris, who's, you know, an amazing rock and roll frontman. A very cool guy as well. He's, you know, he has a certain Fonz-like charm to him. He's a really interesting character. He, he wasn't the cool guy. They were all misfits. Uh, but the interesting thing with Greg is that he's a different kind of misfit. He's... Uh, not a massive fan of rock and roll at the start. He, he was into one folk record, the, the title of which is just eluding me at the moment, but in, until he discovered Grateful Dead, he wasn't your typical rock fan. You know, it, it, everything about him is quite perverse, and it's, it, it's really interesting. That's obviously what makes Black Flag so unique, but to, to have that kind of perverse approach and yet somehow inspire so much stuff that's followed, it, it is really interesting. It, he, it, he has an unusual charisma absolutely i mean you just hit on another point too about the fact that he was deadhead i mean that's you know no one in the wildest dream <laughs> if you made a movie about a punk rock band and you said well the you know the head of the band will be into the grateful dead as a kid people they would laugh you out of the room they would say this is ridiculous 
But that's, I mean, again, that's kind of an interesting thing. I think, you know, we look at punk rock now and, and we consider the whole concept of it being year zero and, and what the Clash and the Sex Pistols were talking about. No, you know, no Beatles, no songs in right. 1976. And that's, I mean, that, that that's a really good story, but that that's not really a very honest representation. I mean, yeah, there's, there's talk about John Lydon being into prog rock, like Van de Graaff Generator in the early 70s. Not, not what you'd think, you know, someone like him would be into. Um, these kids grew up on rock and roll and, and a lot of what punk rock would make look sucky rock and roll in perspective. There's the sort of thing that punk rock came along and washed out of the stadiums, if the myth is to be believed. Right. You know, uh, Keith Morris, and he, he worked in a record store and he loved like heavy rock. He, he said to me, you know, one of the bands I really loved was Fleetwood Mac, the Peter Green version. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't the sort of short, sharp shock of, Hardcore and and it's interesting really with with punk rock and it, it kind of made a lot of sixties references verboten at the time and I remember interviewing Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth and he was explaining how because Lee's a deadhead as well and and how when Sonic Youth started referencing kind of sixties music it was there was a real sense that they were crossing a boundary breaking a rule and uh, I I think that's the thing you know Black Flag are seen as being this band with these amazing short sharp shots of songs but they're also you know He's a very exploratory guitar player, especially as the band evolves. I, I certainly wouldn't say there's anything Black Flag did that particularly sounds like The Grateful Dead, but mm -hmm. that, that's the thing. It's, it's another one of those really interesting contradictions. And, and all the great bands have got contradictions. Right. Like it, It's those contradictions, those things that don't really make sense that, that kind of create the friction and create the, the music and make something unique. It's not just four dudes in a band. It's like they've, they've all got different textures to them, which which cause tensions within the group and i think you know that's the other thing about greg as well just to go back to the first point in terms of black flag he, he once said you know you could go to any trailer park in america throw a brick and run the risk of hitting a former member of black flag there, there were there were hundreds okay maybe not hundreds but there, there were more ex-members of black flag right. than are in most bands that only existed for eight years um and, and the thing is, all the way through it, you know, there were four different singers. All the way through it, though, it, it's Gin's voice, and Gin's really the motor for evolution. You'll have other musicians come in, and, and their skill will, will give Gin the ability to do different kinds of music with Black Flag than perhaps he was able to do with the earlier musicians in the group. But it, it's still Greg that's leading everything throughout Black Flag. Right, and, and in, in terms of leading the band, he's leading this band that comes out of the, the suburbs, the, the the point I made when we opened about your book doing such a wonderful job of getting to the real um, compost that produced Black Sabbath, uh, Black Flag, is it, it's not, <laughs> I said Black Sabbath, Black Flag, it is, it's, it's not the Hollywood punk scene of the mask, and it's not um, anything like, I think, what people imagine punk rock was like in 1976 with the Sex Pistols and uh, the Damned and these other groups. It's a very different. I mean, they literally come out of, um, you know, ranch homes, yeah. uh, gated communities, these types of uh, um, Los Angeles, this type of Los Angeles. And, you know, knowing their third gig was at an oil refinery, it's not exactly uh, <laughs> your, your, you know, your, um, your Sunset Strip glamour story of uh, Hollywood success. No, definitely, definitely. I mean, the, the interesting thing, I do think, you know, a lot of the people who were drawn to Black Flag, a, a number of the members said this, that, that they were quite damaged people in some ways, I think. And uh, they, had, they had certain approaches to the world and certain vulnerabilities. And I think there was a certain sense with Black Flag that they wanted to reject you before you rejected them. Um, 
there was this arty punk rock scene going on uh, in in California. Sorry, in Los Angeles at the time, as you say, that kind of sunstrip, uh, sunset strip scene that's really well covered by uh, We Got the Neutron Bomb by Mark Spitz and Brendan Mullen. Right. And I spoke to Brendan for the book. Brendan used to run, excuse me, The, the Mask, uh, which was this club on Sunset Strip where, where loads of these, you know, glam American Los Angeles West Coast punk bands got their first start. And, and you know, Brendan was saying that the thing is that the scene at The Mask was slightly older and slightly artier. They, they were coming at it from a kind of urban arty informed perspective and I, I think in many ways yeah, the, the, the kids that were in this scene in amongst the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings they, they, they were kind of precocious in some mm-hmm. sense and I think you know with, with with Black Flag they were coming from kind of the dull part of town the suburbs where you know they weren't having all the um, the influences of things right. that, that come across you if you live in a big city Right. Black Flag always swear that they, they were sort of shunned by the mask mm-hmm. community but Brendan swear, swore to me, he passed away a couple of years, unfortunately, uh, but he swore to me that, you know, he wanted he wanted Black Flag to play. And they, they indeed did play a show uh, just before the mask got shut down. But this, this enmity between uh, Black Flag and uh, the, the, the mask scene was, was very much one way. And it was a sense of thing that Black Flag was saying, you would never have us anyway, so we're going to build our own scene screw you you know right. it, that kind of thing which again I, I think the mask scene didn't necessarily feel that way towards black flag but i, I do think that the, the band's entire history is characterized by a kind of need to be solitary and, and that kind of street hustler i will stab you before you stab me mentality so they start their own scene out in the suburbs and you know it's, it's, it's dry like a tinderbox so it really takes off there's nowhere they can play in town because all of the the clubs there are top 40 covers band clubs they just want to have bands come in and do cover versions of the songs that are big on radio at the time and so they have to start everything themselves and that's you know that's that's kind of the the big thing that black flag gave to rock beyond the the music that they they put on those albums they recorded is a sense that they were total Mm self-starters there wasn't this kind of uh underground rock scene that we now have where bands can tour Mm -hmm. in in relative comfort Mm -hmm. across America and, and know that there'll be clubs that will put them on that will get them you know around a certain portion of the states that didn't exist when when the band started and so they had to get lists of, of clubs in different cities and different areas if they wanted to tour outside of LA um, building this up just building relationships with with fanzines and other bands in other cities just so they can share this information out uh, but I mean even even their early shows before they left California they were having to play uh, these these community halls, these social halls, these right. veterans' former wars halls, because no one else would put them on. Right. And um, it was very much the case that once they put on one of these shows, the people who ran the veterans, uh, the veterans of former wars halls, wouldn't put them on either because right. their shows ended in, in, in riots and, and misbehaviour that, that really upset uh, a lot of the people at these these uh, these halls. Uh, Keith told me a story about doing unspeakable things to an American flag on stage that's in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, a lot of what they did offended people. They played a show in Pollywog Park. And, yes. and I actually had the good fortune to visit uh, Pollywog Park while I was uh, researching the book in, in Los Angeles. Um, and it, it was it was a very tranquil, beautiful, you know, picture postcard park with, uh, you know, uh, 
goals for for uh, frisbee football hanging around. There was the swans, there was a pond, and and this was the location during a a Sunday afternoon picnic where Black Flag played one of their first ever gigs and ended up being pelted with with cold cuts and watermelon slices. So yeah, there was where where they were coming from was really important, and I think it fueled you know that sense of rebellion and aggression. Um, they, they were different to everything. They just had to be themselves. Right. I, yeah. I, um, I'm really glad you brought up the Polywog Park story because um, one of the things that the uh, themes that runs through the book is what I think is absolutely right about Los Angeles is that there's this duality between the suntanned, beached blonde, California dreaming 1970s of everyone wants to live in California because it's a prosperous state. It's the golden state. And on the other hand, there's this very dark underbelly which maybe goes all the way back you know back to the uh, la noir period um in the yes. early 20th century but you know you do a good job of of talking about how black flag actually tapped into that creepy crawly manson family um theme and that really to me the polywalk park um kind of captures that where you have this you know this very as you say this tranquil uh sunday afternoon uh, picnic with bands and these guys who are very much a product of that Los Angeles culture, but are coming from a very, very different, darker place, kind of are unleashed on that sunny, you know, um, all of my kids are A students and uh, honor roll students in Los <laughs> Angeles. It is. I, I mean, when when I envisage it, I imagine them, I, I know the um, I know the timing, the, the, it's a bit sort of... Um, anachronistic but i kind of imagine them arriving on on sort of on stage somewhere in in that sort of milieu of, of the graduate that kind of really comfortable mm -hmm. west coast suburban thing um you know the, i think the funny thing about polywog park is is that i i don't know the, the amazing thing about that show is that there exists a bootleg that you can find in mp3 form on the internet quite easily and, and i think it's all over youtube uh, which is actually the Pollywog Park show, which is is totally mind blowing to me. It's it's particularly poor fidelity. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get it expecting a great rock and roll show. It certainly sounds a lot worse than Iggy and the Stooges' Metallic KO. But you can hear what the band are up to. And the the fact of the matter is, is 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 Keith is like this sort of clown, this imp perverse, and he's really savouring being up there. But he it, it 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 doesn't seem dark. That's the funny thing. There was a darkness in the songs, uh, and maybe this is why you know Keith's era of the band is very different to the other three eras. But there's a certain playfulness about it, and you know they do this really foul-mouthed epic version of Louie Louie to finish off. But there's a great six-minute uh, bit in the middle of it uh, where where basically the mayor or, or the local councillor has come on and is trying to calm down this minor riot that's forming in this, this sort of pleasant Valley Sunday Park. And um, he's trying to get Keith to promise he's not going to misbehave any further. And then he just says something along the lines of like, you know, by the way, all you kids, fuck you. And it, it just all kicks up again. And it's it's so silly and so playful. But it's really it's really innocent compared to what would happen later on. I mean, that darkness that you mentioned, you know, there, in, there are different people I've spoken to uh, it, within the hardcore community for whom, you know, Black Flag's darkness is problematic. Um, right. Uh, and for whom this kind of playing with the Manson thing, you know, it's it's a bit like when you see photographs of Susie Sue in London in 1976 with a swastika armband on. Right. Part of it is is kind of thoughtless attempts to shop right. from a position of the innocence of youth. And you look at it now and you just think, well, that's actually quite a complex statement. And I think with, with the flag, 
they did have that kind of innocent, youthful interest in Manson. Because, you know, to be honest, I think the whole Manson um, the whole Manson thing is thoroughly repellent. And he, clearly a terrible person who did terrible things. And, and just like when you see kids with serial killer T-shirts on, it, it's a bit it's a bit immature and juvenile. But there was something profound about the way Black Flag played with it because, you know, while Henry would end up sort of talking about how inspired he was by Manson as a writer, you know, well, I think what they really noticed was Manson's ability to, I don't know, use these acts as, as like weird marketing acts. There was certainly, I think, Black Flag understood the power of controversy and right. fear and seeming dark and that's part of the reason why you know i was writing something just the other day about that really great book that's just coming out on pm press called bard for life which is by a guy called Stuart dean ebersole and, and he's basically written a punk rock memoir about his black flag tattoo which includes interviews with members of black flag and, and hundreds of photographs of kids who've ended up having the bars tattooed on their arm the black flag logo and um you know we, we talk about uh, viral marketing now uh, and, and, and such like as a way of promoting a band, but he was a group that had the, the, the best logo for mm-hmm. stenciling on a wall or for tattooing on your body. And it just spread like wildfire through the, the, the community. And part of that was this kind of darkness and this rebellious thing. But again, with Black Flag, it's, it, it, it's a stimulus response thing. It doesn't happen in isolation. The fact of the matter is, is that, the cops were already pretty spooked by Black Flag and, and scared. The authorities in LA clamped down on it like they did on the hippie riots in, in the 60s, which inspired uh, Buffalo uh, Springfield's uh, What's Going. Uh, oh, I've completely forgotten the song. Uh, so there's something happening here, and what it is ain't exactly clear. The, um, the Buffalo Springfield song. It, it, it's, it's a similar kind of thing, it's this sense of authoritarianism in Los Angeles and, and right. it's almost like Black Flag decided to side with evil over authoritarianism or, or the, the, the Manson route seems somehow to make more sense to them than, than this kind of really uh, almost militaristic mentality and this clamping down on youth it, it, it's intriguing but I think you know they, they, they tapped into this calling the gigs creepy calls and using Manson imagery right. uh, they did it in a very canny way uh, and I think I think I got the impression Chuck was a little bit uncomfortable in retrospect looking mm-hmm. back when, when I spoke to him and, and that Manson wasn't so much the figure as just the effect that he had right. but there's a lot of darkness in, in Black Flag stuff and, and indeed some of their songs certainly on the later records are kind of a little bit hard to stomach in places and, and are things that we would probably take a dim view of now right. for that very reason right there's um, a number of different ways I could I could go with uh in response to what you said, there's so many great pieces there, but, um, you know, the thing that I thought uh, the book really captured and um, illuminated in a way that I hadn't really thought about was the origins of punk rock and skateboarding, or the links between them, I should say, because, you know, when I was in high school in New Jersey in the middle 80s, I mean, that was a given. If you were a skateboarder, you yeah. were into punk rock. I mean, that was it. I mean, and um, you really, I think, do a good job of showing, again, this sort of L.A. police authoritarianism against skateboarding, how uh, Glenn Friedman, the famous photographer, would talk about how he'd be skateboarding in a park and the cops would be beating him up or chasing him and his friends. You know, and later he gets obviously deeply involved in taking pictures of both skateboarding and punk rock. And this is sort of this natural affinity. This, and I'd yeah. love to hear you talk about that. Well, I mean, the, my knowledge of that scene, I, mean, I, I have to give a lot of thanks to Glenn Friedman. 
for for his input on on that section of it because he obviously was someone I spoke to, uh, interviewed for the book, and he was uh, very much like a, a, a guiding light and a, and a real exciting force of positivity during writing the book because he really cared about the story coming out. But I think that that was the thing. It just just this sense of the hatred of youth, I think, was was right. the thing. If you were young, you were seen as being problematic. Uh, there's, there's fantastic footage on the internet that I, I saw while researching the book of like Chuck Dukowski appearing on uh, 70s American TV represent, representing like a punk and, and talking about punk culture. And he's being very erudite and very thoughtful in the face of this absolute terror of, of these conservative families that just don't know what they're being confronted by. Um, this, this kind of hatred of youth, the sense of betrayal, because these kids, you know, they weren't out most of them to cause trouble. They're, you know, later on, they were the HBs, the Huntington Beach kids, who right. were sort of violent skinheads who were like, I don't know, like the, the Black Flag's own sort of dangerous army of violent children. Um, that that came afterwards, but during the sort of late 70s, like 79, there were a number of riots at punk rock gigs. And these kids who went to these gigs, most of them weren't up for causing trouble. And, you know, as I've seen sort of covering uh, protest marches in, in the UK as a journalist. like it, It's been my experience that most of these marches intend to be peaceful and, and only explode into, into sort of violence if there's, a, if there's an agent provocateur within, right. within the riot or if, you know, as has happened, people get kettled. I, I basically, I, I covered a, the, the May Day riots in 2001 in London. Uh, and everything was peaceful until the protesters were kettled by the police in front of Nike Town, a big Nike shopping centre for about six hours. And, and considering the, the protest was about uh, anti-commercialism and, right. and, and anti-rampant capitalism and a sense of Western companies, you know, doing a lot of damage in other countries by using exploitative work processes. Kettling the protesters there was essentially adding a match Right to the gasoline, and and I think that was you know what a lot of these kids found when they came to these gigs is that the violence, certainly everyone I spoke to talked about it in terms of the violence being provoked by the police, and you know it must be it must be so heartbreaking for these kids who are still probably idealistic, especially if they're interested in punk rock, and their first real contact with the police in these circumstances is that they're being beaten by them for having done nothing wrong. It's just. It seems to be like a self-perpetuating cycle of radicalism. These people aren't beaten down. Yeah, and that that moves us to the they little resentment. The uh, the later period. I just wanted to sort of clarify for our listeners is that yeah. when you're talking about uh, the police, you know, we're in uh, Los Angeles in the early '80s, cracking down on punk rock. It's not. We're not talking about you know a couple of black and whites pulling up with their lights and a couple of guys getting out and sort of roughing up kids. We're talking LAPD full on riot gear prepared yeah. for the worst type of civil disturbance. I mean, like like you say in the book very well, they replaying the Watts riots. You know, this is, okay, yeah. we, we've done this once. We know how to handle this. We're ready for this again. It, it's total riot squad behavior. I mean, that was, that was the thing. Yeah. Watts was really important as well. It was, uh, following Watts, there was a big, uh, big press backlash, basically accusing the police of not having known what to do in the face of a riot. Uh, and as a result, the police ended up buying lots and lots of anti-riot equipment, which, they didn't really get to use right. afterwards. There was, right. like I said, there was the riots on Sunset Strip during the sixties, but they didn't last very long. Um, and uh, you know, there, there were there were threats later on. The, the, the Manson killings were interesting, and the fact that 
that was showing that the real threat wasn't going to be riots. It was going to be murderers. And, you know, you can't, you, they, they couldn't defeat Manson using a, a riot tank or squads of policemen with crash helmets and shields. And there is this sense that it was happening because they had to justify that they had all this stuff. Um, but as I say, it, it just ended up radicalizing uh, later generations. But again, this is something that, that some people mentioned to me that they felt uncomfortable about was the fact that Black Flag seemed to profit off mm -hmm. of um, did this violence it, it became again a, a way of spreading the word and, and giving them a sort of mystique that trouble kids would probably find really attractive and um i i know again you know in conversations i had with musicians who are from the same kind of background as black flag that they, they were ultimately quite uncomfortable and, and I, I know brendan mullen felt that there were times when the band were playing up to the violence or, or, or trying to invoke it just because I don't know, it, it becomes the thing. But also I think that, that's kind of the success of Black Flag or something that they triumphed at was not being, you know, totally summed up by the violence. There was a lot more going on. It was definitely something they struggled with, though. I mean, the violence that occurred in the mosh pits became really problematic as the band matured and evolved, and they weren't up for just playing songs for skinheads to punch each other in the head to. They were playing... You know, slow, dark, heavy metal influenced music, quite difficult music, uh, instrumental music, and, you know, that kind of violence. I think one of the reasons why they slowed down is that they wanted to escape that violence. They didn't right. want to make music that would make kids go crazy in the mosh pit. But the truth of the matter is, is that the kids in the mosh pit never really allowed them to do it. Uh, Mark Arm talks about kind of my war era black flag gigs where they were playing the, the slow, heavy stuff. And he, he said he remembered loving it, but that there was quite a negative response to it from the audience. So it, they just really wanted to hear stuff off of damaged over the first right. four years. Right. It's kind of jumping ahead here and we can circle back. But yes, I, the, the, no, it's fine. The, um, the, 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 the book and your, um, your coverage of the, the Rollins period really, I think does a great job of highlighting how Henry sort of became the, um, the center of that because of it, it isn't so much maybe that Henry is seeking out the violence and maybe, maybe that's not right, but it's more that people, you know, take their opportunities to, well, I'm mad because black Sabbath, uh, black flag is playing a 15 minute version of this song at a slow pace. Yeah. So I'm going to put my cigarette out on Henry's leg or I'm going to stab Henry with a, with a big pen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that, that, that makes me sort of sad that I wasn't able to talk to Henry, uh, for the book really, because it, it is really intriguing corner of it um i of, of the people i i wasn't able to talk to the, the the clearest sort of most painful absences were were henry and were greg of course um very early on in, in doing the book i heard back from henry Rollins's people that um while he wished me well with the book uh, he doesn't talk about black flag anymore uh and that included the book and he, he he just wasn't willing to be interviewed about it and i, I did kind of appreciate why because i think i think henry's felt ever since a certain point in his his sort of climb to success that every time he's talked about Black Flag, that, that Greg has seen it as Henry taking all the credit for it, which is it's kind of strange because most of the times Henry talks about Black Flag, it, it's he literally says that band only existed because of Greg Ginn. It's Greg Ginn's band. I was just one of four singers. He's very humble about it, um, uh, and so as a result, he doesn't talk about the band anymore. Um, and, and that is kind of frustrating because obviously we have instead of his interview we've got the resource of his tour diaries which I refer to in in a, in a few places and, and when you just see the sort of physical and psychic damage that he was able to withstand during that period he became the focal point of it 
and um, it, it's interesting. I think he felt like he was doing the right thing in terms of the band, whereas later on, Greg would accuse Henry of uh, of kind of whipping up the violence. And there was one show where someone tried to attack Greg, and Henry stepped in and, and beat the shit out of the guy. And um, you know, Greg was really angry. And and in 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 his tour diaries, Henry's writing is really kind of very affecting he, he feels betrayed by greg and he, he wishes greg had seen that he was willing to take this beating for his his leader if you like it, it, it's a really interesting thing um you know henry's henry's art was very dark in these in these sort of early years really the, the minute he started writing his spoken word performance i mean we, we know him now as, mm-hmm. you know a, a very charismatic and, and very winning and, and very amusing and entertaining kind of punk rock after dinner speaker he's he's spoken word material now it's, it's hilarious I, I i love listening to it i think it's very entertaining um but his spoken word material he was doing in the last few years of black flag and, and his sort of lyrical contribution was really dark very very much influenced by people like bukowski um but also by kind of younger writers that you know people of his generation he was a huge fan of nick cave he's Mm-hmm. really good friends and, and performed with Lydia Lunch um, he, 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 he sort of had a true darkness to him really I think there's a kind of comedic darkness in a lot of Black Flag's earlier stuff mm-hmm. sort of I don't know there's a sort of fun to it but, but Henry's darkness came I think from a very dysfunctional upbringing and, and a lot of pain that he still felt within him and it kind of poured out in his lyrics in, in the spoken word he did like the family man LP that the Black Flag did later on in their career, which was half aside instrumental music and half aside Henry's spoken word pieces, is is very chilling, very difficult to listen to, very very upsetting material. So, um, but yeah, the, the the amount of damage that he must have withstood. I and mean, there's a legend that like on his first show with Black Flag, someone jumped out of the audience and broke his nose, and then someone else jumped out of the audience and set his nose so he could play the rest of the set. It, it just seems barbaric to me. It's, um, but it is it is a really interesting part of the story, you know, just, just the, what he withstood, what happened at those shows. It's very, very intriguing. Yeah, the, um, the just uh, the transformation of him, even if you look at the photographs in the book where he looks um, at the early picture where he's on the skateboard, he looks very much... Um, <laughs> I don't want. I, he just looks younger and then um, less jaded. But by the, the later period, where you see him in the black, running shorts, uh, nothing but long hair, tattoos, it's a very different visage. There's this very different vibe that yeah. comes off him. It's, it's like an armor in a sense, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, it's, it's just beefing up. It's you know, every single one of his t- tattoos seems to say "fuck off." I'm dangerous. You don't want to get near yeah. me. And. Yeah. Um, that's clearly that's clearly his thing, and you know, it, it, it it's a total evolution for him. And I think you know he's talked about like how important an influence on him Chuck Dukowski was. Mm-hmm. But you know, Chuck Chuck said a lot that gets overstated, and that Henry was the the real article. Chuck didn't really shape him too much, but he came he became a really dark and intriguing character. And, and you know, again, I, I think the tensions in the group later on come from the fact that he doesn't just want to sing. Greg's lyrics anymore and he, he starts to become the focus of the group and, and, and Greg in seems to begin to resent that despite having encouraged it at the start right right well um, yeah it seems that as, that as, like you mentioned earlier that Greg had uh, no problem with uh, replacing one member for another or, or pushing someone out 
Yes, and it, it, it's interesting when people talk about it. I know Chuck was very upset when he was when he was asked to leave, mm-hmm. or you know, he he feels that he was kind of swindled into leaving by Greg. And I think this is the thing as well. There's one of the interesting things about doing the book. One of the things that made it a challenge and made it quite a hard thing to do was just the, the sense that a, a lot of the people who came away from it felt kind of wronged by their years in Black Flag. I, you know, in, in nothing else I've ever done have I come across people who were so emotionally invested I guess in discussing this and, and almost I guess setting the record straight and um, just talking about what, what ended up being for a lot of people quite you know quite a, a painful period of their life um, there was a sense of betrayal on the part of people because I, I think because they were just so dedicated to the group I mean you know the band famously toured on an absolute shoestring like pennies a day you know panhandling to get across America and, and to do everything on this really tight budget. Um, they all worked together on the label. They used to live together in a church that they were kind of renting out and illegally living in. You know, there, there was a real sense that this wasn't a band. This wasn't like you're on your way to success. It was a cause and, and they were all part of it. But when people got asked to leave, I, I think it was really painful. And um, I don't know whether Greg didn't appreciate that or if he just thought, the mission is more important than anyone's feelings. I, I don't really know, but there were certain, there were certainly people who came out of Black Flag feeling very damaged. Well, too, and this is one of the one of the the great no no um, one of the uh, other great stories in the book that you uh, you do capture the voice of Henry Rollins, where he he says that Greg Ginn called him up and quit. He says, "I'm quitting Black Flag." Yes, which is, uh, you know, which Henry Rollins obviously sees the the hilarious aspect of that is that it was Greg Ginn's group yeah you're quitting I mean, your own group it, it, there's a real there's a real breakdown that happens at some point towards the later end of the group uh in my head it was meant to be a greg solo album and then just became a black flag album when the instrumentals were given voice by henry and um right. but there is a breakdown that happens i mean the, the, their albums their actual discography it's really weird like the last the last few records were all recorded in a very tight period of time and just came out in dribs and drabs as SST were able to to afford to put them out but there is this evolution in the group um, musically but at at some point there's a frustration I think and you know there is this massive quantum leap that happens after damage and before my war there's um the band were unable to record for a number of years because of uh, a, a lawsuit with their distributor that, that kept the band completely out of the studio for a long period of time. And they wrote a lot of material and involved kind of away from the glare of publicity. When they came back with, with My Award, the songs are slower. In fact, the second side is, is nearly impossible to listen to, uh, but fantastic to listen to. It's a real challenge and you probably deserve a gold star if you can sit through the whole thing this real change happens in them. And, and like I said, the fans didn't really appreciate it. Some did, but a lot of people didn't. And, and at some point, I think there's this utopian ideal within Black Flag that becomes betrayed, whether by it's the fallings out between the people in the group, or if it's, um, you know, just the grueling experience of being on the road in a band that was facing so much and, and, and really took so little luxury uh, when they were on the road. Yeah, the, uh, the, the go, go ahead. Yeah, so just 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 that the relationships get really really busted up, and um, 
you know, people aren't talking. Uh, the, the filmmaker Dave Marquis did a fantastic movie that people are probably aware of called 1991, The Year Punk Rock Broke, mm-hmm. uh, Sonic Youth movie. He actually was invited uh, on the road with the band. He was, he was with uh, one of the support bands. He, he was a drummer at the time, uh, but he also had his video camera and he filmed a movie called Reality 86, uh, which Greg ultimately refused to allow Dave to release, much to Dave's chagrin, but slips out along uh, unofficial channels every now and again. And that's a video of the very final uh, Black Flag tour. And, and people weren't talking. There's a really bad vibe between people. I think Henry knew at the end of that tour that it, it wasn't happening anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, um, there's uh, the, the final show, which again is available as a bootleg out there, their final ever gig. There's certain things that he says between songs. Uh, and there's a, a really long version of Nothing Deep Inside where he improvises a lyric about losing his brother. And, you know, I've always felt that he's talking about the loss of his friendship with Gin, which which really sort of tears the band apart. I think that's one of the reasons why they, they ended in such a dysfunctional a dysfunctional way. Right. And the, um, the thing that comes to mind is, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when they weren't touring, and uh, you, you mentioned earlier, too, I should, should highlight this again, is that um, they weren't, you know, wherever the money was for Black Flag, no one was getting rich. It yeah, was, yeah. No one was getting rich. And, and so Henry is living in a converted shed in the backyard of the Ginn's family property. Yes, and, and the uh, the condition of the shed uh, and the quality of the shed and the luxury of shed is apparently something that has been disagreed upon right. between Henry and Greg <laughs> right. in the years since. Uh, as far as Greg's concerned, it was his dad's office, right. so it wasn't just a shed. But I, I, I'm guessing it was probably more shed-like than, than most of the places any of us have lived. Right. I, you know, the, I, I meant too to, to, to kind of get at the idea that they were living in very close quarters all the time. And it's not as yes. if we come off the road and usually the rock star mentality is I want to get a great distance away from these individuals I've been spending the last yeah. three months from uh, with. I want to go spend a month away from them before I can stand to see them again. Whereas they're coming off the road and they're living in the same space. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that can't be healthy, can it? It's. It's very unnatural and it's it's very uncomfortable. And but I think that's the way it had to be. I mean, this is the thing. That, that, as I said earlier, it's the things that make bands unique that make them great. It's, mm-hmm. it's these little things. And I I feel like that kind of weird bad vibe that they seem to be living for the longest time. Sure. It, it, it makes those last albums quite vivid and, and quite powerful. The, the experience of being Black Flag made Black Flag's music and. Um, it's a crucial part of it but yeah i mean it was it was massively uncomfortable um heavy heavy karmic Mm. you know prices were being paid i think and let's let's talk about those the um sorry i didn't mean to speak over you but let's talk about that last period of black um flag and what i really um didn't fully appreciate before i read your book is how influenced um they were by what we would call, you know, call heavy metal circa 1980, meaning uh, Dio-led Black Sabbath, Ronnie James Dio's first solo album. And that really, to me, um, I think could be connected up well with the the idea that later in the 1980s, we have this idea of the birth of crossover with suicidal tendencies and DRI and Anthrax and these other groups. But it seems as if Black Flag was doing its own version of crossover well before that happened. I think you know. I think sort of in terms of genres, the sound doesn't always matter so much as like the mindset mm-hmm. or the, even just the culture of the fans. Um, you know, thrash metal, thrash hardcore punk, 
musically there there are similarities between them and there are bands that, that seem like they could be really fluid and slip between the, uh, the 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 worlds and it's it's not the sound that really defines them it's just the kind of cultures of the fans uh metal kids and punk kids weren't necessarily you know they, they didn't necessarily blend they probably saw themselves as distinct from each other you know due to the kind of music they were into and, and the kind of people that they were and i think you know black flag very naturally tapped into this this kind of rock stuff it was the, the kind of stuff they grew up on Really, it was. Uh, it had always really been in there. I, I do wonder sometimes if it was just Greg becoming a better guitarist that he, he started tapping into this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, Henry, obviously, as anyone who's listened to the Box Life will realise, is a massive fan of Thin Lizzy. You know, it, they, they've always had this stuff at heart. Um, I do think they were just tapping into it and, and getting interested in it. I mean, I mean uh, you know, a, a lot of ways, maybe the early punk rock stuff was, was a moving on from that and, and later they come back towards it. It, it is this sense of like verboten cultural references that, that punk rock was supposed to stop you listening to. But the truth is punk rock comes from this music mm-hmm. and a lot of the people who are into it were into this stuff and, and loved it regardless of whether, whether it was punk rock or not. Um, but yeah, definitely there's the, it's, it, it's this kind of splicing and, you know, there's a lot, a couple of times you, you've meant to say black Sabbath instead of black flag. This interview, which is probably because both bands have just reformed, but, um, but I feel like there's a certain similarity there. There's a kind of darkness and a heaviness to Black Flag, which appeals to, to metal fans in a way that maybe Descendants or, or, or Minutemen wouldn't. There's, there's a certain sonic violence to it, maybe, or, or a certain blackness, a certain heaviness. I just think like there, there's, there's probably a very slim margin between these genres, and, and, and that definitely comes into it. But again, like tapping into this rock and saying we like this stuff, a lot of the time I felt it was kind of, while it wasn't false, the fact that they were being really open about it was kind of Flag's way of trying to say to all the dumb kids beating each other up in the mosh pit, like, you know, you're not going to like what we're about to do, so maybe you should go and listen right. to other stuff. Right. And that, um, that you mentioned that Black Flag is reformed. Um, yes, can you talk yeah. a little bit about the, the, the state of the post-Black Flag, Black Flag bands? Yeah, I guess um, there's there's two of them. I know I know which one I would like to see out of the two of them. I'm not a massive fan of reunions that are just for nostalgia's sake. Um, I do really love the, the reunited Dinosaur Junior because they've gone on to make three excellent records since getting back together. Whereas this these reunions, one of them is going to end in, end up in the release of a new Black Flag album. That's the one which uh, Greg Ginn and Ron Reyes have formed. Um, I'll be interested. I don't know. They are actually playing the UK. I don't know if I'm going to go to the show because it's a, a, a heavy metal punk festival uh, quite far from London. But I, I would be interested to see what's going on. Uh, the, the band, well, there, there, there were two Black Flag reunions in the early zeros, um, reunions of sorts. Henry Rollins got together with uh, an all, his, his, his own backing band and a, a series of all-star vocalists, including... Um, Iggy Pop and the guys from Slipknot and Lemmy, but also Keith Morris uh, and um, Chuck Dukowski to do covers of, of Black Flag songs in aid of the West Memphis Three. Right. Um, and around the same time, uh, Greg Ginn did a, a reunion show in Los Angeles where it was him um, and uh, I believe Des Kadena sang. And, and in the book, he talks about this kind of ill-fated reunion how he was involved with it and it, it, it all fell to pieces and 
the, the show didn't get terribly good reviews. Greg's show didn't get terribly good reviews. So I, I kind of get the feeling sometimes that he, he wants to end it on the right note if it's not a continuing thing. I mean, the thing with Greg is he's never stopped making music and putting it out. It's right. just that it's it's been quite obscure. He's, he's done solo stuff. He's had his instrumental group gone. Uh, he's had various different interesting operations. There's a band called Jam Bang that he had a few years back that was like a kind of electronica jam band type thing. Uh, uh, he doesn't really make music that sounds like Black Flag every, very often, so it'd be interesting to see if this apparently forthcoming Flag album sounds like Black Flag. Um, Ron Reyes, who was the band's second singer and left under a cloud, recording only the Jealous Again EP. Uh, Ron had an interesting path in life. Uh, after leaving Black Flag and playing in a few other bands, he, he became a born-again Christian and lived in Canada and, and, and never really discussed Black Flag. And uh, I, I think he had a softening in his, his kind of beliefs shortly before uh, my book. And uh, I, I got to be the first person to interview him after he sort of warmed towards discussing Black Flag again. And he played a show in Canada uh, for his 50th birthday and Greg Ginn turned up and they did a short Black Flag reunion in the middle of it. I think that's the start of this this reunion mm-hmm. group. Um I must admit, I'm kind of more excited by the idea of Flag, which is uh, Des Kadena and um, and Keith Morris and Chuck Dukowski uh, together with, I think, a few members of... Um, and Bill Stevenson, I think, is their drummer. Uh, and they're all tying up with uh, some, some members of Keith's other band, Off. Uh, I, I'd be quite excited to see them play, just because I think Chuck is a really underrated part of Black Flag. Uh, and I think he's a real force of, of nature and a real really the heart if he's not the heart he's definitely the brain of black flag certain for the period he's in there uh and and keith's still a fantastic front man uh if you've seen his band off play the last couple of years then you know it, it's hard to believe the guy's in his 50s he's just the same cantankerous rock and roll front man he's ever been uh, and i'd love to see De- uh, des perform um i don't know I, i'm not crazy about reunions I, I i if you could get me a time machine and i could go to a, a garage in in Homosa Bay in 1978 or, or 77 to see Panic, the pre the pre Black Flag version jam around. I, I'd be really up for that, but I, I don't really know what this is except for um, a, a fun show, which is right. a, an odd thing to consider with Black Flag, isn't it? It's, it's really strange to think of people going to a Black Flag show to have fun, yeah. considering back in the day they sort of went to Black Flag shows to beat people up or, or, or get involved in, in crazy violence or something. Which, which brings us full circle to the fact that Henry Rollins is not involved in either of these reunions, I take it. Yeah, I, I, Henry has said that he's not interested in making music anymore and that he feels he's too old. I think I think I read that somewhere. I, I certainly listened into his mouth because I disagree. I think he could still make great music. He just probably has got other stuff on that he feels more engaged with. Uh, I think Henry's got this, this. He's got the pride of someone who knows, as a great rock and roll fan, what happens when people aren't great anymore. And right. I think he doesn't want to not be great. Right. I think that's the real part of of Henry's sort of reluctance with it. But I also can't imagine him really. It's a contentious period for him. Right. I don't think he likes going over it too much. I think it, it, it's just caught up with so many arguments that have happened since. He loves Black Flag, but I think I genuinely think he loves Black Flag as a fan. I think he's a fan of the first three singers more than he's a fan of his right. era with the band, which I think shows considerable humility and just just makes me admire him even more. But, uh, yeah, he's not involved. Yeah. Um, well, if the traditional final question on uh, 
new books and popular music is uh, to give you an opportunity to tell us what you're up to today and uh, your next project or projects you're working on. Okay, as a well, um, trying to think. I, I, I actually, I, since since doing this book, uh, I did I did a first book uh, about Sonic Youth called uh, Psychic Confusion that was on Omnibus, and after that. Uh, I did a history of the Ninja Tune Records labels, which is a, a, a kind of avant-garde hip-hop label that's based out of London. is is really important in kind of dance music history. Uh, I haven't actually done a book since 2010. I really want to do one. Uh, but doing this book was really intense. It was really hard work. Um, and uh, not that I'm afraid of hard work, but I always think of these things like, it's like childbirth, really. Like I, I'm not, I, I don't know because obviously I've never given birth, but I'm reliably informed uh, the women's bodies right. are able to forget the physical agony of giving birth. They right. just forget it. They don't retain the memory of it because if they did, it's like biologically imprinted. <laughs> like if women remembered how painful giving birth would be, they'd never do it again. And um, I don't have that with writing a book. I remember how hard finishing this one was. And I think I, it took me a while to kind of forget that and uh, and, and want to do one. I, I, I've got a few ideas that I'm, cooking with that i can't share with you just yet that i really want to do uh, but i'd love to sink my teeth into it otherwise um I, i've just sort of gone back to being a, a a jobbing journalist which is lots of fun um i have a feature on deer hunter in the current issue of mojo magazine which i, I do suggest you will seek out because it's a great magazine and it's got black sabbath uh, not black flag on the cover <laughs> current issue um otherwise uh, i i used to do a magazine called loose lips sink ships um and I'd very much like to do another one of those. Uh, it's a, a sort of fanzine I did with a photographer called Steve Gullick. Um, and otherwise, yeah, I, I do hope to be doing another book soon. I just want to make sure. It's funny. I mean, the hardest the hardest work of doing a book beyond the writing of it is is assembling the people to talk to. Yes. And, um, I did. I should probably say here, I did try ever so hard to speak to Greg Ginn. Uh, I tried very hard indeed. I used to phone the SST compound in, in Austin, Texas, where he was based at the time, regularly and, and, and just not get an answer or, or, or get his assistant. And his assistant would say he'd try and pass on my message. And, and I just never heard back from him. And it, it was frustrating because uh, obviously he's such a crucial part of the story. And also I, I didn't want to try him in absentia, if you like. There were a lot of people who had a lot of grudges about what they'd experienced with, right. with Greg and I, I I didn't feel comfortable airing all that stuff without giving them a chance to talk back the, um, uh, yeah the uh, to, to jump in I, yeah. I I think the one thing about though about not having Henry and Greg participate is it somehow allows you maybe as an author maybe you can tell us whether this is right or not to free you up to sort of shape the story in a way that would be maybe more true to what your vision of black flag is as a journalist yeah. and as a historian then as um when you have these huge important figures and they tell you certain things it's it's much more difficult to say mm, i'm not sure i agree with that interpretation because greg Gant I, just I told mean, it to me that that wasn't i that, that wasn't really my experience i think i mean my, my way of approaching these stories is whenever i do a book just because the stories are so mammoth is, is, is i sort of go prone and let the story take me where i'm going i mean when i when i accepted it's funny, actually. I didn't. I, I didn't so much pitch this book as agree with my publisher that it would be a good idea to do. I, I've always loved Black Flag. Um, it, it's funny, just just because my age and, and where I am, I'm not probably the natural person to write a book about Black Flag because I'm I'm 37, and I'm from London. I'm not from California, and I wasn't there when it happened. And um, 
I got into Black Flag, I think like most people in my generation, you know, after Nirvana broke big with Nevermind, there was this great upswell, it mm-hmm. seemed, in the media. And it, 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 if you're into music and you were interested in where stuff came from, you, you'd search out what the reference points were, what the influences were for the bands that you really like. And, and Black Flag were one of a number of amazing groups that I discovered during that time, Huskadoo, uh, Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, the, the, these sort of Minor Threat, Fugazi, all of these bands that you sort of discovered during this era. And um, I really, really loved the group. And I was just meeting up with my publisher after my, my Sonic Youth book had come out and we were discussing what I might do next. And just throwing some ideas out, just mentioned Black Flag, and, and we both just suddenly thought this would be a really great story to do. I, I What I didn't realise is I didn't realise how people weren't in, really in contact with each other in the band at this point and, and how much there was a falling out between some factions. And so that made it the hardest thing to do in this book was to track down the members of, of, of the band and get them to talk. And um, I'm really glad to have, have gotten to talk to the people I did. Like I said, I got I got Ron's first interview since uh, since leaving punk rock, if you like. I, I got to talk to Chuck Dukowski, spent many hours talking to Keith Morris, who was immense amounts of fun, uh, Kira Rosler, Mike Watt, uh, other people involved with SST. Um, but I didn't get to talk to Henry and to Greg. And, and, and the frustrating part of that was is that as a historian, I, you're right, I did pull the story together. I think what, what it did free me up to do was to tell the story from the perspective of the foot soldiers of the band, if right. you like. We, we, we have interview material from Greg uh, covering how he felt about the group and how he right. felt since the, the breakup. And obviously Henry's written uh, Get in the Van, but what we have with um, with the other guys is a different perspective, and and I think their perspective is just as important, and and it, it did give me more room to to look at that. I think with two characters who are so vivid and so full as Greg and Henry, if I had spoken to them, it would have become the Henry and Greg show probably. So yeah, I think that that that, that is that is the silver lining to that. That is definitely the silver lining there. Well, again, as we uh, wrap things up here, Spray Paint the Walls by Stevie Chick, The Story of Black Flag, uh, came out on Omnibus in 2009, certainly available at, uh, at Amazon.com and any other bookstores that you prefer. Um, the uh, the lack of Greg Ginn and the lack of Henry Rollins does not take anything away from the tremendous job that uh, that Stevie did, it, again, recapturing a time and a place. And uh, even if you're someone who only has a, a vague interest in punk rock, I, I would really urge you to seek the book out if you want to understand uh, – really America and in some ways Los Angeles as a uh, sort of focal point for the United States circa 1979 through 1986. It's just a a great book. And I'm uh, just very appreciative, Stevie, that you uh, took the time out to talk to me. No worries. Well, I'll say it again. You're very kind and it's been lovely to talk to you about the book. It's been really fun. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. No worries. Take care, Greg. Okay. You still there? Yes, I'm still here. Uh, I I figured we were saying goodbye. I I should have told you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, great. I, I uh, there were so many of the things I wanted to to talk to you about. I could I could go on for hours. I mean, the I, I, I can go on for hours. Oh, and I'm a terrible interviewee because I just I just ramble. So no, I, I would be really frustrated interviewing me. I no, I absolutely loved it. I think uh, I think the people. I mean, I think the um, you know the 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 sort of model book that kind of goes through the new books and popular music has been more academic in nature. Um, yeah, not necessarily. Although he my uh, my co host matt just did the within uh, the last few months did a a piece on joe carducci's book so he interviewed joe oh, right. and he's a huge uh, actually uh 
Matt, my fellow host, I'll send you a link to his uh, to the blog. He uh, he's working on a book on meat puppets, actually. Oh wow! Oh. Oh, that's fantastic. Although I'll cross that off my list of books that I wanted to write. <laughs> yeah, they're, he, they're uh, a fantastic story, aren't they? Yeah, he's been uh, he's been uh, I think grinding that out for for several years. And uh, but right. yeah, the uh, the as a as someone who's a, a academic historian, and uh, there's a lot of flaws to the academic approach to history, mostly that nobody reads your books. Um, yes, but, yeah. uh, it is, which is absolutely true. But um, the thing I really really enjoyed was the uh, was the, again that the, that you. And that's what I was trying to get at with the question is that it wasn't just let's let Henry and Greg retell the story of Black Flag. It was more, yeah. okay, I've got to dig around and find these other guys who were around and watched the band and saw the band and, um, you know, the skateboarders and all the other people who were who were there and were part of the scene but yet were not central to the band. It gives it such a, um, you know, just a nice heft to the book that's uh, that I think gets lost in a lot of these straight on rock bios. I mean, partly it was, uh, it's funny, actually, because my first book was a Sonic Youth book that I had to write in three months. Um, <laughs> it, it, a friend of mine was supposed to write it, and he was trying to move to Australia at the time, and just as the book was supposed to be delivered, uh, he, his paperwork came through, and he got to move to Australia, having written not a single word of the book or done any research. Um, I managed to do it really quickly, because uh, I was such a massive fan of the, the group, and I write quite quickly. Uh but I didn't get access to the group themselves because they were working on, on their official bio that came out by David Brown a couple of years back. And um, I just remember panicking and just thinking, right, well, am I really going to have to write like 90,000 words based on the three interviews I've done with Sonic Youth in my life and the stuff that I can find on the Internet? And I just figured, well, the only thing I can do is just get lots of context in there and, and interview the people who saw them and who right. knew them and who were friends with them and help them help me put it all in context so when i was doing this it, it just became really clear to me that without henry and greg there would be quite large gaps there there would be gaps that couldn't be filled right but um you know the the plus side of that would be i could just interview other people and get a wider perspective and it, it, I, it was kind of like when you were talking about it from a historian's perspective it allowed me to to step in and tell the story i think the thing is i always feel like i want other people to tell the story for right. me like I'll, I'll have my narrative there right uh, i i always want i don't know it's like my perspective on it as as a, as a set of ears and so many things is right. important to me right but i, I want to know about the people who were there on the ground at the time so i was right. really lucky to get in touch with um like joe from the lost uh from the last sorry joe nolte mm -hmm. um yeah I, I it's funny it's like sections of it become the history of the last uh, which in part is because I was just I, I was terribly late with this book and I had to write I had to send off each chapter as it was finished so I didn't really get to go back and maybe refine it I might I might have cut some of that stuff back if I got a chance to edit it again but it, for me it was all color and it was all trying to bring this world to life and um, you know it, it was exotic to me because I'm an English person right. I'm fascinated with America and I'm fascinated with this period in history but w when I visited it with with my friends who showed me around and it was just this sense of history was disappearing and it was going to become remote to everyone else quite soon. Right, right. And, and you know, that's exactly what um, inspired me to do the Van Halen book. So I'm, you know, I, can't, I went to graduate school, have a PhD right. and um, ended up getting tenure. And so I'm sort of at this midpoint of my career where I can kind of do what I want. Um, and I just, you know, I really, as I 
I grew up a, a massive Van Halen fan, just a massive few, uh, fan of heavy metal and hard rock. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, and I just sort of, as I see, you know, Eddie Van Halen's, um, you know, as his health was deteriorating, and there's just yeah. notes that the band has sort of almost studiously avoided doing anything, no behind the music, no box set. I just, yeah. I sort of realized that, you know, I, that as a guy who, you know, I play a little bit of guitar, that this is a good guy who's as important to guitar playing as, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Richie Blackmore. You go down the list. I mean, he's up there yeah. in the top, anyone's top five in terms of sort of traditional guitar hero rock uh, guitar playing. And uh, I just realized all those stories were going to get lost. And so I just started really networking through Facebook and other places, finding these folks who played in local bands um, around the same time. And some people have actually gotten to be fairly successful. And um, one guy I talked to who, who you may know is uh, Rusty Anderson, who's Paul McCartney's guitar player. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who played on the same scene as Eddie. And so that was my sort of thinking is to sort of try to get as many of those folks and then work my way up the food chain to, uh, you know, I did get to talk to Ted Templeman and Don Landy and some of the other people who were, um, involved with the Van Halen camp. Uh, Michael Anthony did, I did speak to him, um, who was, which was fantastic, but, you know, sort of at the end, I figure I'll approach those guys and I'm sure I'll get turned down, which is, you know, which is part of the, part of the deal. I'm sure that's just what happens yeah. to, uh, you know, to nobody's in the, in the world of journalism or history, like, uh, like me, they just, uh, you know, don't even bother returning the call, but, um, yeah, I just, I just well, felt this incredible sense of, as a historian that, you know, the, the stories I'm, I hear, and I began to hear of uh, people saying, I went to see this guitar player in 1974. I couldn't believe it. You know, I just, I couldn't believe how great he was. He's 18 years old and he's the best guitar player I've ever seen. I mean, I, people tell me that story over and over again, just having their mind blown by Eddie Van Halen as a young kid and just about the band itself. And to me, that's, um, you know, those books have been done on Hendrix to kind of capture his formative period. And it's going to be. Like you said, they're going to be gone, and the people are going to be gone, and it's just yeah, they'll be lost. I, yeah, I think it's I, I think that sounds really fascinating because I don't think anyone's really taken that era with any kind of seriousness either. And I think Van Halen was the one band that you could approach it in a not in a kind of Aerosmith the Dirt or the whatever the um, whatever the Motley Crue book was like taking it not just for the kind of crazy wild stories, but in, from a musicological sense. The, 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 right. Van Halen seems to be the band of that era that was genuinely musically important, as you say. Um, I don't, you know, I, the thing is, it's like they, they've got no problem. The, the thing about um, getting people to, to talk to you and stuff as well is like, people will talk to me when I'm working for Mojo, but right. a lot of the time they won't. It, it's it's the title that gets you Absolutely. the access because there's, there's nothing in it for them to talk to you. So, But I, I think if you've got so many people that you've spoken to and you really shown a, a true commitment to the story that that works that works a lot more than than where you're from or what you've done before i think if you show that you're not writing a cash-in book on this kind of thing that that will go far now i mean what limited stuff i know about van halen is is that aside from michael anthony everyone else in the band seems insane <laughs> so that that will make things slightly tricky right right, right. and that's but, you the, know, and I, that's I, the thing i mean it's just that's the the thing and so what you know i am um, I, I am about 90% done with the book proposal, and um, which has been kind of a, a challenge for me as well, too. As a historian, you know, the type of book proposal you do is very – like for an academic press, is very different than for a popular right. press. I mean, you know, in terms of having a, a market – you know, like a marketing session. There's no marketing section in a in academic press because they know what they're going to do is they're going to sell it to public libraries and they'll put it up on Amazon. But there's no, you don't like, you don't have to sort of explain the market. 
Do you know what I mean? It's not that's yes, not the goal yes, of the book. Yes, you know, yes. the, the book is going to sell a couple hundred copies, maybe five hundred copies if you're lucky, and it's it's meant to be a contribution to scholarship, not this product that's commodity that's going to be sold. So I've kind of been struggling with that too, not really knowing how to, you know, if I'm doing it right or so so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I I, I haven't got an awful lot of experience with pitching books. I, I I've been very lucky that I fell into my first book and. It led to my second book and right. the third book with friends and such. And now I'm getting to a point where I'm going to have to, you know, come up with a pitch and approach the artist to try and get an authorized or semi-authorized access to, to, to the central musicians in it. It, it. it becomes quite complicated. I, I think with something like this, though, I, I always say this with, with me, with music journalism, you've got to stress the story. That's the real heart of it. Like the story or the angle that you've got right. is, is really, you know, that that's the engine. That's what will get you as far as you need to go is if there's a really strong story. Well, I'm good at just yeah. summing it up. No, I mean, I think that's right. I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to, 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 uh, to bring out in the proposal is that this is a, a great untold story. I mean, I could go on and if you have to go, Stevie, let me know. I mean, I could talk no, no, for hours. Fine. I mean, the, 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 the thing in the book too, I kept reading and I was, I was saying to myself, yes. I mean, the thing is that black flag didn't do, the top 40, right? They didn't say, well, it's 1978 disco is big. Top 40 is big. We'll go do clubs and we'll learn, yeah. we'll learn 60 songs. We'll do KC and the sunshine band and we'll do some Peter Frampton songs. But that's what Van Halen did. They played backyard parties, but they also played these top 40 clubs. And that's sort of what, you know, uh, you know, provided the band, I think with a lot of the, the, um, the pop sensibility and this that made their yeah. album so successful, but they, they, they went in and did that. Now they may not have been a great top forty band by the stretches of. They didn't really sound like the records, but that's what made Van Halen magical in some ways. Anyway, that they could play, you know, um, anything really and make it sound like Van Halen, which is that this is the, the the story I want to kind of bring to bring to life that they're out there gigging in this you know this uh, L A that is huge. I mean, you know how big L A is. It's just yeah, it's as yeah, big yeah. as um, you know. I'm sure some counties in in uh, the U K. It's as big as the UK. It's, I think it's. A, I drove across it. I'm pretty sure it's that big. It's, but yeah, yeah. And they, uh, they, you know, it just like Black Flag mined that um, landscape too for to play all these different um, Moose Lodges and American Legion halls. This Van Halen did this the same uh, same thing. And the thing too about the, as I mentioned, email to you that was really great about your book is that you know, Van Halen was from the suburbs. Now they eventually got accepted in Hollywood, but at first yeah. no one wanted to ever like Pasadena to the, to, you know, to um, the guys who were hip in Hollywood was the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was just, yeah. you know, that was just orange groves and, and fancy houses. Why would, why would we want to bring a band from Pasadena into Hollywood? That was just not cool. I always, I always feel pretty strongly. Um, really big scenes come when no one's looking. Mm -hmm. uh, the eye of the industry just disinfects everything that's good about rock and roll. Um, okay, there was a scene in New York uh, 10 or 11 years ago. I don't think that much of, of, of any real lasting importance came out of it in a pop sense, except for maybe the yeah, yeah, the strokes are just... A lot of people must be feeling very embarrassed about how excited they got over that band, mm -hmm. myself included. Um, but if you... you know, one, one of the, the scenes that I've been really impressed by while I've been a music journalist was The White Stripes, and just that whole Detroit scene was very intoxicating at the time, but specifically his own talent. Mm -hmm. that because they're playing in a place where no one goes. No one would go to Detroit. No one no one would willingly go to Detroit. No, <laughs> no one would go to Detroit. Everyone leaves Detroit. No one stays there, and certainly no one goes there. 
And as a result, they're just able to, to make the music that they want right. and come up with a unique sound because there's no one working for a record label, you know, passing them a wrap of cocaine and telling them that they need to do something different. Right. It's, um, right. you know, it's, I can't remember the last decent London band. I mean, there are London bands that I love, but they, they're expressly trying not to appear in the charts and, are, you know, often on the, the edge of being unlistenable. But the actual ambitious, successful bands from London it's blurred blur is the last one and i think there's just something about being in a capital city or one with a with a really powerful media uh, and entertainment industry is that there's, there's just almost the opportunity gets rid of all of the creativity it's just too much going on there and too many eyes wanting to find the next big thing right the um, uh yeah the, the the uh the thing too about the different scenes i mean you you uh in the book in talking about the origins of SST, I can just think about the fact that for these guys, Greg Ginn and, and the others, you know, for every other working musician in L.A., if you really wanted to be a actual artist, it was all about we need Warner Brothers to come see us. We need to have Capital yeah. come see us. It was all about this sort of, you know, glitzy um, cocaine sh- uh, champagne record label you know, breakthrough that you're going to have that this, this, you know, producer is going to come see us very much like what happened to Van Halen. And yet, you know, that, so they get on Warner brothers, but you have a flag, these guys are like, well, you know, they're never, we're never going to even, we're not even thinking about that. That's not even part of our, our mindset at all, which is amazing, which is really, really quite remarkable about those guys that they just said, we'll make our own records. That, that, I mean, that's almost the big difference between, which, which I think is really interesting. Like with Van Halen, you were saying, you know, they, they, they did do the top 40 songs and they worked hard and they did the gigging thing to be an entertaining rock group. And that's because they wanted success. And I, you know, I, right. I, I certainly think there's nothing wrong with wanting success. The greatest bands have come because they wanted success. But I mean, Black Flag clearly didn't want success or they didn't think they would ever be able to get this kind of success or it, it just wasn't part of the equation. And I think that, that shows like you're right. The, the two bands literally in the same rough geographical area the same rough geographic you know the same rough period of time right overlapping totally overlapping but like their their venn diagram is two circles that don't touch in any way shape or form like i mean there there are there are touch points and there are maybe sort of sonic similarities between the two groups but in terms of it's like i was saying about metal and punk it was more an ethos thing it was more do you know what I mean? Like, there's 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 some hammer there's, there's some hammer tapping. I assume there's some hammer tapping. I, I don't really play guitar, so I'm entering a very dodgy area here. But there, there's there's metallic, you know, Van Halen flourishes in some of those later Black Flag records right. in terms of Gin's guitar playing. It's, it's very purposefully playing it quote unquote wrong. But I mean, there there are sonic similarities, but. The real difference between those two groups is is the kind of worlds they operated in and, and the goals that they had and stuff. And I, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I'll, I'll let you go after this one last question. I just am yeah. dying to know, did, what happened to the money? Or was there never any – I don't mean there was ever millions, but did anyone ever make any money? I had a modest uh, I had a modest um, advance for the book. Uh, <laughs> if this, if this, this, is, this is totally off the record, isn't it? Yeah. I it, it, I don't know where the money went. Um, the vibe I get and the vibe that, that, that Greg has justified is that, I don't know, it reminds me slightly of that scene in It's a Wonderful Life when there's the run on the bank and uh, they, all run in into the, the, they all run into the savings alone and they all demand their money back. Right. And, 
and you know um, Jimmy Stewart has to explain to them like you're you, I haven't got your money your money's in Joe's house and your money's in Rob's right, house and right. your money's in Stan's house and I think that's what really happened with Black Flag is I, I don't think they did make an awful lot of money and what money they did have they plowed back into SST right. um, which when you're all hands on deck and everyone believes in the same thing uh, and everyone's all together and altruistic about it is a brilliant system to have. That's what you should do. Like that's you, you put the money in so your friends can make records and so everyone can make records and, right. and everyone's in on it. The, the minute you're not friends with these people anymore, or the minute like you start selling a lot more records than all these other records, you're spending money that, that your profits are going towards continuing. Then the minute you're out of the loop, right. people get very alienated by that and, I, it's really weird. Again, it, it's one of those things that I'd really love to talk to Greg about because I am really interested in the morals of it. Like, who's Skadoo? I mean, who's Skadoo who's is a tragic example, really, of um, a band whose who's greatest records are essentially unpurchasable at the moment because, you know, they only exist as terrible SST CD pressings, no bonus tracks, just the, the albums as they were released. And they sound pretty bad and... The only reason why there's not been an extensive reissues um, program with Husker Do is, is because Bob and Grant really don't get along. I think there's, I read an interview with Bob where he said that that's changing now, hopefully, and that, that they've all got lawyers and their lawyers are speaking to each other now and there might be something in the future. But those records still belong to SST in theory. Uh, it, but it wouldn't be that hard for Husker Do to say, well, we've not received royalties on these albums for years. Right. So therefore, we want possession of them, and that and that's what bands have done. That's what Dinosaur Junior did. They got um, they got Bug, and they got You're Living All Over Me back off SST when they reissued them back in 2005. Right. I don't know what the the deal was there. I think it, it's pretty much the sense that these bands didn't get paid for the ones that sold, and and some of those records must have sold quite a lot, especially in you know the the aftermath of grunge and the breakthrough of these bands like who's could do i i only bought who's could do records because nirvana said that they sound like who's could do right and, and so i'm interested in, and you end up discovering a band that you love but those records must have sold quite well at a certain point and those people didn't receive the monies for it i mean your, your friend is writing the, the the meat puppets book can confirm this for me but i always heard that you know the reason the meat puppets reissued um reissued their albums via oh who is it was it rhino it wasn't rhino was it um Riker disc in in the early zeros is because they said something in an interview about um never seeing any money from their sst issues greg who is very very um litigious sued them for saying that they'd never got paid and in the uh, in the in the lawsuit it was settled in favor of meat puppets because they'd never been paid and um and so uh so they ended up getting the rights to their record back just just kind of by default and by fluke so i don't know i mean greg's managed to to, to have a living ever since black flag split up and he's certainly not had any successful records since then right. but right I I would be I would I, he's put the money in the label and the label's weathered some really serious financial problems in the past. I think that's the real heart of it, to be honest. Right, right. Well, Stevie, what can I say? I'm really grateful. I had a great time talking no to you. Really You've been listening to a conversation with Stevie Chick about his book "Spray Paint the Walls: The Story of Black Flag," which was published in 2009 by Omnibus Press. 
Please check back soon for another episode of New Book and Popular Music or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. This is Greg Randolph signing off and saying thank you for listening.